Hi, it's Ken White. Hi, it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Ken, uh, we have additional news developments this week uh, in the January 6th investigation. Uh, We talked uh, last week after the uh, surprise testimony from uh, Cassidy Hutchinson. Uh, A lot of news contained in that, including a lot of news about interactions that people had with White House counsel Pat Cipollone or as the auto transcription had it, Patsy Baloney. Uh, the audio transcription is not very good at dealing with the name Patsy Baloney, but we here at Serious Trouble know how to know how to say the former White House counsel's name, uh, Pasquale Cipollone, actually, uh, if you're being formal. Honestly, I think I might go with Patsy Baloney, but that's just me. <laughs> we are taping this on July 6th. Uh, that interview with Pat Cipollone is expected to occur on July 8th. There will also be uh, an interview with Patrick Philbin, who had been his deputy at the White House counsel's office, so, Ken, I guess the, the committee already spoke with Cipollone back in April, uh, but that interview was not transcribed. This interview will be transcribed and under oath. What does this mean, a transcribed interview? It really means something that they can enter into the record and show off at one of their well-orchestrated uh, hearings where they've deployed segments of videotaped interviews to great effect. So before they could just characterize what he said or quote him, now they'll be able to presumably either to show the transcript or if they're doing it by video, play the video. But so he'll be under oath. He's appearing pursuant to a subpoena, although there was an agreement about certain privilege issues, which which we'll get into. How is this different from a deposition? Well, it's a congressional event. It's a congressional hearing. So the procedure is really whatever Congress wants it to be. It's not governed by, you know, the federal rules of civil procedure or something like that. It's governed by the process they decide to go through under House rules or any variations on House rules they want to do. So because of that, it, it doesn't have a big legal significance. I suppose, except in the ease with which you could later impeach him with it if he's decided to say something different. But it definitely has a a persuasive significance uh, in terms of how it will appear when they play it and the fact that he's under oath and things like that. Yeah. So I was thinking about the fact that, you know, the, the April interview that he did apparently was not under oath. This one will be. How much does it matter whether you're under oath? I mean, I, I realize that sounds like a silly question, but like it's still illegal to lie in one of these interviews when you're not under oath, right? Couldn't you be charged under 1001 false statements to a federal official? I assume your obligation to tell the truth doesn't arise solely when you're actually put under oath. Oh, that's correct. So it would still be a violation of 1001 to lie to Congress in a matter in Congress's jurisdiction, which this would be because there's ongoing hearings about it. That doesn't require you uh, be under oath. But, you know, lawyers in particular have almost a religious reverence about putting someone under oath. And they believe that when you go through that, it actually has some bearing on whether or not they'll tell the truth. It certainly it, it opens them up to a different set of potential crimes if they lie. But I'm not sure that's really what makes the difference. The difference between you might get prosecuted for 1001 versus you might get prosecuted for perjury too. I think people believe that just culturally, because of the way we view Oaks, people are more likely not to violate it when they've made this solemn promise not to tell the truth. Now, I did say, I see the expression on your face, I did say this was a quasi-religious belief. Yes. So, uh... Well, I mean, so, like, what is this, the status of that, like, you know, brotherhood of attorneys right now? Um, because, I mean, they're, they're dealing with their wayward brother, Jeffrey Clark, right? Yes. 
Well, the other thing that it does, I think, is it gives a culturally acceptable excuse for telling the truth if you're otherwise not inclined to. So you can always say, sorry, man, I couldn't go to bat for you. They put me <laughs> under oath. What was I supposed to do? Uh, and, and that gives you a way to come out and say things that could be seen as disloyal under other circumstances. So let's talk about the content of this interview, the likely content, because there's there's privilege issues here. And I assume there's two categories of privilege issues, right? There's executive privilege and there's attorney-client privilege, because Pat Cipollone was the, the top White House lawyer. He was the White House counsel. And so we already know that in the, the prior agreement about that more informal interview that he had in April, uh, in general, uh, he was not going to answer questions about his interactions with President Trump, except the one specific meeting, the showdown meeting on January 3rd in the Oval Office with Jeffrey Clark. So first of all, that's, that seems like kind of an arbitrary rule to make up, right? Like, I'm not going to talk about conversations with the president except this one conversation. That doesn't sound like, you know, what would and wouldn't be covered by executive privilege, right? So is that that they can just sort of make up whatever rules they want about what they're, where they're going to assert privilege and where they're not, what they're willing to talk about and what they aren't? Well, it's a negotiation. So uh, yes, it would be arbitrary, I think, to assert privilege over everything but that conversation and expect a court to enforce it that way. But when it's a question of what can we get away with, what can we agree on to avoid litigation over it, that's a different question. So I, I think they decided on a carve out here. And so who's they? Because doesn't this privilege belong to Donald Trump to the extent it exists rather than belonging uh, to Pat Cipollone? I assume Pat Cipollone can't, uh, uh, well, he certainly can't uh, unilaterally waive attorney-client privilege. He also can't unilaterally waive executive privilege, right? So, uh, and I mean, there's there are even ambiguities about to what extent a former president uh, gets to assert executive privilege or it gets to be asserted on their behalf. So I think it's Cipollone and his lawyers uh, versus the committee and its lawyers negotiating out what are we going to get away with. And, you know, it, it may be in part what Cipollone actually wants to say or not say, and he wants cover for saying uh, politically. Uh, but you, you talked about two privileges, Josh, the executive and the, uh, the attorney-client. Executive privilege, remember, is the uh, judicially created category for confidential communications with the president that go to giving the president advice about something. Uh, that's the heart of it. And so maybe they have a theory that what was going on at the apocalyptic meeting uh, where everyone was dunking on Jeff Clark was that it really wasn't giving advice to the president. It was more vetting Clark and, and uh, listening to his opinions. As for uh, attorney-client privilege, yes, there is a privilege that goes to White House lawyers to giving advice to the, legal advice to the president. But something interesting here is that generally it's not available when there's a criminal investigation. So all the way back to uh, the Nixon impeachment proceedings, in, in that case, the Supreme Court said, well, you know, this yields because it's it's not really this person's individual lawyer. This is not Richard Nixon's personal lawyer or, or Donald Trump's personal lawyer. It's, it's a lawyer for the institution. And therefore, it needs to yield if there's a criminal investigation. This, though, this particular procedural context isn't a criminal investigation. It's a congressional one. So that makes it more murky and makes it more plausible that some sort of privilege could be asserted for actual legal advice. And who would have to assert that privilege? Because we had th this issue with the, the committee was seeking certain documents from the White House, uh, from the Trump White House. And it was up to the Biden administration to decide whether or not to assert 
privilege to refuse to turn those over to the committee, whether to assert executive privilege. And they decided not to. And there was some controversy over that, that, you know, that this was a political decision and also a question about, you know, the extent to which this protected the prerogatives of the White House, uh, future White Houses to protect, you know, future internal communications from discovery. Um, But basically, Trump had no say in the matter. He's not president anymore. They're not his documents. And the Biden administration could agree to turn them over if they wanted. Does that apply to testimony like this, too? Uh, Yes, it should. It's the lawyer's initial duty to assert privilege when there's one available, but then to take instruction from the client about whether or not to answer. And here, uh, it's the institution that holds the privilege, not the particular individual in it. And that's why the Biden White House is, you know, waiving the privilege to the extent there is one. So I think it would be um, Cipollone's obligation to assert the privilege if there's a plausible basis for it unless he gets instructions otherwise from the client, who realistically is really the institution and not the former member of it. What you said about, yes, there are concerns that if one administration waives the privilege on the prior one, that that chills legal advice, but that's a policy argument mm-hmm. and not strictly a legal one. You know, it's it's just on a different scale than if, you know, a corporation gets a new board of directors and they decide to waive privilege of what the attorneys told the prior board when they did something illegal. Is there a crime fraud exception to executive privilege? Well, since uh, the doctor is entirely manufactured, as you pointed out before, <laughs> there's no reason there shouldn't be. But I don't think a court has expressly recognize that as such. However, I don't know if it needs one explicitly because executive privilege is already contingent and not absolute and, uh, you know, a balancing test applies and that type of thing. So I think you've got that built in. The Nixon executive privilege case related to Watergate wasn't wasn't there basically sort of a balancing question about, you know, the the importance of the information to be discovered that sort of seems like a way to sort of make up a homemade crime fraud exception? Right. It's, it's just another way to put it. It's, it, it a crime fraud is an app, just an application of the balancing test the Supreme Court articulated for how far the privilege extends. So there's no role for Donald Trump to intervene in here. He couldn't bring some sort of lawsuit to try to block Pat Cipollone from, from participating in an interview, asserting privileges of his own. Well, you know, my mentor, Josh, anyone can sue anyone for anything. Uh, but there's not a well-established basis for Trump to say that he can force Patsy Bologna to assert this privilege or enforce it through him. But he can certainly tie it up in court for a while if he were so inclined. So what might we actually learn in this testimony that would be of interest? I mean, one thing is, you know, Cassidy Hutchison made a number of claims about things that that President Trump said or did uh, on or around January 6th, some of which were, I, I think, more like interesting from a news perspective than the extent to which they actually matter in terms of understanding whether there were crimes or, you know, what the important takeaways were from January 6th, in particular, the question of did then President Trump try to lunge for the throat of a, of a Secret Service agent is sort of entertaining. It's not clear that that really goes to the core concerns uh, that Hutchinson raised there. But I assume one thing will be, you know, some of these events will be asking for for Pat Cipollone's uh, recollection of what happened on on, on January 6th. But what, what else would we get out of him that would be of interest to us? Well, I think you're right that 
some of the interest is in the cinematic, uh, the stuff that sort of shows the atmosphere and uh, how unhinged everyone seemed and, you know, what the president's mood was that kind of informs our interpretation of whether things were being done that were deliberative and careful or whether they were just reacting and careening around doing things. But I think also uh, we could hear more things that Trump was saying not in a seeking and receiving advice, but in a sort of, you know, yelling at people and generally venting type of sense that could help inform analysis of his knowledge and intent. So remember, we talked last time about how it was important if he's saying this alleged bit that, you know, I don't care if they have guns, pull the magnometers, let them in. They're not here to hurt me. Uh, if there are similar comments like that that don't really relate to uh, discussions to get advice, uh, legal or otherwise, then I think we could get more color like that that shines a light on what Trump's mental state was. We could also get a lot of stuff about uh, that through how other people reacted, what they were saying about what Trump said, how they reacted. You know, we, we've heard a lot of sort of wringing of hands and pulling of hair over people saying how terrible this is and someone's going to jail and all this type of thing. We could get a lot more of that. Something that happened in the lead up to Cassidy Hutchinson's uh, testimony before the committee was that she changed attorneys. Uh, that, you know, up until about a month ago, she'd been represented by the, the law firm of Stefan Passantino, which uh, was receiving payments from Donald Trump's Save America PAC. And, and Alyssa Farah, who is another former staffer in the, in the Trump White House, has said that uh, Cassidy Hutchinson is one among many people whose legal fees were be being paid by a Trump-associated entity. We also have news about Stuart Rhodes, uh, leader of the Oath Keepers militia, who's been charged with seditious conspiracy. He's been having legal fees paid for by an entity controlled by Sidney Powell, also, therefore, within Trump world. And so I guess, you know, first of all, how unusual is this to, you know, if you're someone who was part of a political operation, the political operation ended up in significant legal hot water. It's actually fairly normal for them to be paying your legal. Now, not the Stuart Rhodes uh, Oath Keeper is obviously not an ex-administration uh, official. So that's that's an odder thing. But someone, someone like uh, Cassidy Hutchinson, it doesn't seem like a, a surprising or even odd thing that uh, she might have an attorney being paid for by a uh, political entity associated uh, with the administration she used to work for. It's true. It's very common in white collar type cases where there are investigations of big organizations, whether they are political or corporations or things like that. And in fact, some states have laws requiring uh, an employer to indemnify an employee and pay their legal fees under certain circumstances, sometimes even criminal. Uh, but this is not unusual. And there are things about it you could say good things about and things you could say bad things about. So there is an element of, you know, they're only in this mess because of us. It's only right that we pay for it. But there's unquestionably also an element of we would like to control the situation and control the testimony. At a minimum, you want to know what the people are going to say. So uh, the way you do that, whether it's a political organization or a corporation, is you have a group of attorneys representing the company, you know, the CEO or president, uh, CFO, or, you know, whatever the political equivalent is, and then attorneys representing lower level employees and witnesses. They'll often be in a joint defense agreement where they agree to share information. And that's how you start to find out what everyone else is saying in the situation. And it's, it's governed to sort of keep control and to uh, know what's being said to the government. 
I mean, in a situation like this, most of these people are not plausible uh, targets or, or subjects of a criminal investigation. Like Cassidy Hutchison, could she have even been party to a joint defense agreement? She was not. She was not mounting a criminal defense. Sure, she could. So the a joint defense agreement, remember, is this agreement where you say all the lawyers who are part of this we're going to share things our client told us, but we are all agreeing to keep it confidential just among ourselves. And therefore, because we have a, a similar interest in what's going on, this shouldn't be treated as waiving the attorney-client privilege. It should be treated as still within the circle of confidentiality, and therefore it can't be compelled to be disclosed. And that theory, the common interest theory, is fairly broad, and anyone who might plausibly possibly whose whose behavior might come into question can be part of it. So obviously it applies most forcefully to targets and subjects, people who you think they want to indict or whether, who are they're figuring out whether to indict. But it also routinely is extended as far as to witnesses because they too have a common interest in knowing what the government's doing and who they're going after because, you know, you don't know for sure they're only a witness. And also, as you said, it can be hideously expensive to be represented through the process of being a witness and, and you have an interest in being treated fairly and knowing where the government's going with the investigation. Is there any limit to the conditions that you can impose on your financial support for somebody else's uh, legal needs? Can you, I mean, can you say that you have to enter the joint defense agreement in order to, in order to receive this financial support? Are they able to withhold payment because they don't like certain legal advice that your lawyer might provide or because you decline to follow certain legal advice that the lawyer provides? Are they, I mean, are they basically in the room like they are the co-client with you? So let's break that up a little bit because it's complicated. First of all, uh, let's leave aside some state laws that say when someone has to be indemnified. So sometimes there are state laws basically saying that if you're sued or even investigated or prosecuted for things you did on behalf of the employer, they're required to indemnify you. And in that case, they wouldn't be able to put those conditions on. Other times, there are matters of legal ethics that put restrictions here, Josh. So uh, in almost every jurisdiction, there's there's a rule of legal ethics that says that when a third party is paying your fees as an attorney, you have to disclose that to the client and get their, their written informed consent to the situation, including explaining to them the downsides like, uh, you know, this person can try to put influence over me. They can try to tell me what to do, and that may impact how I represent you. You're supposed to only listen to the client and give them the best advice. So if you get into the situation where the payor says, don't let them talk about that or else we're not paying anymore, then you've got to just tell the client that. Uh, but give them the best advice. You're not supposed to be carrying water for the person paying the money. Now, realistically, uh, it does happen. You know, in particular, the the drug cartels are notorious for paying for lawyers for low-level people on the condition, basically, that they shut up and never cooperate. Otherwise, it's it's not unusual to have situations where people in joint defense agreements determine that their best interest is to cooperate with the plaintiffs in a civil case or the government in a criminal investigation, and therefore they have to exit that agreement. And sometimes that means that their attorneys are no longer paid. So yes, there's a, a huge incentive and pressure to stay on board, not to flip, not to cooperate with the other side. And how explicit that pressure is depends on the people involved and uh, how bold they are. In a situation like this, where there's intense political interest on both sides of the investigation, conceivably, you could have 
financing for legal costs from the other side. Like if you were, you know, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know exactly what the marketplace for this would look like, but if you were Cassidy Hutchison and you don't want your Trump-affiliated lawyer anymore and you want to go spill on national television about this stuff, there have to be a lot of interested anti-Trump donors who would be just as inclined to put money behind that as the, as the pro-Trump committees are for if, if you're staying on the team. Um, so I don't know, maybe that's something that actually works itself out here, that there's plenty of money floating around for the lawyers, whatever it is that people want to do. It doesn't seem like a super ideal situation in terms of having, you know, people with pure motives making the decisions about how to how to cooperate here. That's true. And for someone like Cassidy Hutchinson, there's probably a fair number of qualified lawyers willing to do it on a pro bono basis for the publicity and uh, that comes along with it, because her representation probably isn't too time intensive. Uh, it's not like someone who's going to you know, be going to trial or something like that. And, uh, you know, it's very high profile. So, yes, there are often alternatives and it's a good thing there are because having legal counsel for this sort of thing is ruinously expensive. If to have a, you know, a well-qualified lawyer who knows what they're doing on this level is more than most Americans can afford. We have news this week also about grand jury subpoenas in Georgia. Uh, Lindsey Graham has received a subpoena to testify before the, the special grand jury uh, that uh, has been put together by District Attorney Fonnie Willis in Fulton County. That's the county that contains Atlanta. Uh, John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani, Cleta Mitchell, uh, who's a, a prominent Republican lawyer who was involved in, in some of the Stop the Steal stuff. Jenna Ellis, who had been uh, the uh, Jenna Ellis Esquire, excuse me. So first of all, I was interested that we know about the very existence of these subpoenas. Uh, grand juries are supposed to operate sort of in secret, right? And that's to protect the interests of people who are being investigated who might never be criminally charged. So it's interesting to me, first of all, how much we know about what the grand jury is up to. Well, from what I understand of the structure of this particular grand jury law in Georgia, Josh, is that you know, it's a special, especially called convened grand jury. And the statute requires them, as far as I can tell, to seek approval from the supervising judge of that county's superior court and file something called a certificate of material witness, uh, basically to get the judge's buy-in to subpoenaing somebody. So that's really a policy choice, as far as I can tell, on the part of the Georgia legislature, that we're, when we're going to allow people to do these types of grand juries, uh, we're going to require them to get supervision from the judge, and some part of that is going to be public. The descriptions are not of exactly what the person's going to say or what other witnesses have said. It's more of the general subject matter of the testimony that's anticipated or the areas they want to get into. Lindsey Graham, who's a Republican senator from South Carolina, who is uh, one of the one of the recipients of a subpoena here, says he's going to fight the subpoena. Uh, he put out a statement that called the, the DA's investigation a fishing expedition, says she's working in concert with the January 6th committee, and any information from an interview or deposition with Senator Graham will just immediately be shared with the January 6th committee. Uh, and so I have two questions about this. One is, you know, what legal grounds would Lindsey Graham have for, for not complying with this subpoena? The statement, it says this is a fishing expedition. He does not uh, identify a specific legal rationale about why he would not have to testify. No, he doesn't. And it's not even intended to be a plausible gesture towards offering legal justifications. It's just pure political statement complaining about the political motivations. I can't speak to uh, Georgia law on this, but there's nothing in federal law that would allow you to say, I think they're going to leak it and, to someone else and therefore you, you shouldn't make me testify. None of the justifications uh, he articulates in that press release are anything close to normally something you can use to resist a grand jury subpoena. And, you know, he, he, he makes sort of 
I guess you could call it a gesture to there being some sort of privilege uh, related to communications that he was engaged in. Some people have said, well, do you think he's talking about the speech and debate clause uh, of the United States Constitution that should protect him? But that's not plausible because the speech and debate clause just means basically he can't be, you know, investigated or sued for for core legislative things he does on the floor of Congress in terms of like, you know, making arguments for a bill. It certainly does not apply to uh, outside phone calls to people in a different state where he doesn't even have any authority. So we'll see what it is. It might just be nonsense. Uh, it may We may be expecting too much to think that there's even a plausible legal theory behind it. Finally, I, I want to talk about a question that we got from a listener named John, uh, and it's about intent. Uh, he says, in the older episodes of All the President's Lawyers and in this series, we've stated that Donald Trump's state of mind is a barrier to prosecution. Ryan Goodman has asserted that it isn't, particularly for the Georgia charges related to fraudulent electors. Can you discuss the finer points of this difference of opinion? Is it another case of law professor theoretics versus practical prosecution? And so he's referring to this op-ed that, that ran in the Washington Post. It was by Ryan Goodman and also by Norm Eisen and Barb McQuaid. And the three of them basically say that everyone agrees you have to prove intent in order to prove crimes and specifically to, to prove crime, the, the crime of uh, obstruction of an official proceeding um, or fraud in the United States or ver various other charges that have been discussed here. Um, but they're saying that, that people are getting the nature of the intent requirement wrong, that you don't have to show that Trump knew that the election hadn't really been stolen from him. You don't have to show that he knew that he really got fewer votes than Joe Biden in the various states that were decisive, including Georgia and Arizona and such. You can show that he understood other things. And in particular, that the, they, they emphasize this idea that you can be wronged in some way, and that doesn't necessarily entitle you to right the wrong in, in any way that you wish. I mean, you can't break into somebody's home because you believe that something in there has been stolen from you and you're, you're going there to retrieve it. And so they, they, they contend, you know, for example, with the, the slates of electors, that uh, it's not, you don't have to show that Trump knew that he didn't really win that state. He just, you just have to show that he knew that this wasn't the, the duly submitted slate of electors from that state. Or that uh, in the case of Mike Pence and counting the votes, they contend that, that it's been shown decisively in the committee hearings that Trump knew that it was a violation of the Electoral Count Act for Mike Pence to not count those votes and that therefore that you know he was that he was committing a crime by seeking to have Mike Pence do that what whatever the underlying truth of the matter was about who had gotten more votes in the relevant states and so i guess first of all do you do you buy this is this you know is this a bank shot around needing to make any sort of demonstration to a jury about what Donald Trump really thought in his heart of hearts about the true vote counts uh, in November of 2020. Josh, I mean, these are all people who know what they're talking about in, in general, uh, and they have a relevant experience. But I, I think as a theory, it's not very plausible and doesn't really reflect the way that prosecutors tend to like to approach this sort of thing. So the argument, as I understand it, is even if Trump sincerely believed the election was stolen from him, he was urging people to do illegal things in order to pursue that. And I think that is a, a, a tricky needle to thread uh, because a lot of the information he's getting telling him what we need him to know coming from the same people at the same time in a way that's intertwined. So, you know, you've got people saying, no, there is no fraud. And also, no, you can't do that. You're, you know, Pence doesn't have the power to do that. So I think it would be tough to say that, to argue that he had 
knowledge of one but not of the other. For the, for the obstruction count, you do need to show he had corrupt intent, that he intended something illegitimate and not proper. And yes, you could technically say that if he thought the election was stolen from him, but he understood that it was illegitimate for Pence to decide these, think about these other electors. Yes, you could say that met the standard. But I think the way prosecutors are far more likely to do it is to do both at the same time. And then to say, but even ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know, you don't believe that he knew that he lost, even if he knew he lost, he still knew he couldn't do it this way. So they'd combine it. I really don't see them going on a theory where they tell the jury not to think about whether or not he thinks he lost. Also, the type of intent we're talking about here, where we're trying to parse between knowing he lost the election and knowing these weren't legitimate means to pursue a lost election, that may be a little more sophisticated than it is realistic to expect that a jury's going to get. Juries tend to respond better to big picture stuff. And I think that that's likely why the uh, prosecution is going to go all in with he knew the whole thing was bogus and the defense is likely to go all in with uh, he thought everything was valid. So neither side is likely to parse it. It's it's, it's just a, a little too academic and cute, I, I, I think, even if it's technically correct, it's implausible. I also just thought, you know, setting aside, you know, the you could you could get there by proving this instead of proving that he knew that he had really lost the election. It seemed to me like some of the subsidiary things you'd have to prove under their theory are actually harder to prove uh, than than showing that he that he knew that you know he hadn't really won the most votes in Georgia. I mean, if you want to show that Donald Trump understood the Electoral Count Act and understood the vice president's legal obligations under the Electoral Count Act, and the evidence for this is supposed to be that there was a meeting with John Eastman and with an attorney in Mike Pence's office in the presence of Donald. Trump, in which John Eastman admitted that the things that they wanted Mike Pence to do were prohibited by the Electoral Count Act. And it's like, aha, Donald Trump knew what the Electoral Count Act said, and he knew that it said Mike Pence couldn't do this, which like, A, it's, you know, it's it's Donald Trump. It's entirely plausible that he didn't pay attention to that aspect of it, uh, that, you know, he didn't he chose not to believe it because he didn't want to believe it. But even more damaging than that is that you have John Eastman claiming that that aspect of the Electoral Count Act is unconstitutional. Right. And therefore, it doesn't matter that it violates the Electoral Count Act. And that, you know, then if, if Donald Trump believes everything John Eastman told him, then he doesn't believe that what they were asking Mike Pence to do was illegal. He believes that it was legal because the law that purported to make it illegal was unconstitutional. And so that's, you know, first of all, you're going to make people's eyes glaze over when you're having to have an argument about, you know, good faith beliefs about the unconstitutionality of aspects of the Electoral Count Act. Uh, but it's also, it's just entirely plausible to believe that Donald Trump, you know, thought that Mike Pence was allowed to do what, what he was being asked to do. Because you also have all these contemporaneous statements from Donald Trump about that he believes that Mike Pence can and should do this. Um, so I just, you know, I just find the idea that that's the thing that you would hang your hat on with a jury, and that's supposed to be easier than convincing them that uh, Donald Trump was just, you know, lying at every turn in order to try to hold on to the White House. That just, It just seems much more complicated and more difficult um, and so it doesn't seem like a, a way around the problem at all. I think any presentation is much more effective if you do it as a whole rather than try to parse it out like that. Because I think that what was told to Trump about whether or not there was fraud uh, informs how you interpret what was said to him about whether or not this Electoral Count Act stuff was valid or not. And how he reacted to things on January 6th 
informs uh, how you take his intent about all this stuff. You know, the, the, the Latin phrase that trial lawyers use is res gesti, which means more or less just all the stuff mashed together. That's not what it actually means, but that's what lawyers use it for. Uh, <laughs> so you say to the judge, well, why do you think you can get in this this thing the person was doing at the time? As a res gesti, judge, you know, it's, it's part of the whole story. And I think that's where this story is the most effective when you add together these different things uh, that he's doing and being told and reacting to. Uh, because I think you have an easier time convincing a jury that he knew this elector scheme was bogus if you see him at the same time willfully looking away from people telling him that it was fraudulent. Uh, so that's why I think that this, as you suggest, that, that this approach they suggest is um, is not easier, it's harder. Yeah. In terms of that, you know, looking at the whole big picture thing and the challenge of proving Trump's intent that he, you know, he set out to mislead people uh, into believing that he had received enough sufficient votes that he ought to have won the election. You have the fact that prior to Election Day, you had this political effort to ensure that the count in several states would go in such a way that Trump would initially lead the count as disclosed, even if he received fewer votes overall, which is to say that you had a number of states that received unprecedented numbers of early and mail-in ballots. And Republican legislatures in those states blocked legal changes that would have allowed the pre-processing of those ballots. It basically meant that there were huge stacks of absentee ballots they couldn't even open until Election Day um, and wouldn't be able to count them in a prompt manner. It was going to take them days to count them. Um, and so the Election Day vote, which was disproportionately Republican because Republicans were less afraid of COVID than Democrats, that would come in first and you would get a count in Pennsylvania and in Michigan and uh, that would show that Donald Trump was in the lead, even if he was ultimately going to end up behind in those states. And that's precisely what happened. And then you have Donald Donald Trump going out there and some of the arguments that he makes about why he really won the election and was stolen from him is, look, I was ahead on election night. And then mysteriously, they found all of these votes. Like, you know, it's just, oh, how many votes do we need to take the lead away from Trump? And they count those and then they, they rig it. But you saw on election night that I was ahead and that's because I really won. And so the fact that he he and his his uh, and his associates contrived this situation that would allow them to make precisely that argument, that seems like it goes to intent, right? Sure. The question is, though, intent of whom? I don't think Donald Trump is a plausible figure for an elaborate multi-month coordinating with uh, Republican state legislators scheme. Oh, oh but, I think but, he is. I, th I think he was absolutely—I mean, I, proving that in court is another matter. But no, I mean, mm -hmm. Trump is capable of paying uh, attention to aspects of his, his political operation, especially aspects that involve whether lower-level Republican officials are being loyal to him or not. Like, you know, I don't I don't find it implausible in the least that, that Trump was was read in on the, the pressure campaign that was, in fact, brought on Republican lawmakers in states like Pennsylvania not to change the counting procedure. Well, I mean, certainly we have him quoted as saying, you know, just say there's fraud and let Republican legislators do the, the rest. Sure. I, I think it all goes into the pot as part of the scheme. Uh, the trick is knowing when you're making it too fancy and too complicated uh, so the jury's eyes glaze over. You're in this constant uh, tension between proving too little and proving too much. So, uh, you know, that whole bit, because then all of a sudden you're, you're getting into people's attitudes about absentee ballots and, and all that. You've got to make a judgment call. Does that really move the ball in terms of showing there was a fraudulent scheme? 
why don't we leave it there? That's enough serious trouble for this week. Uh, listeners, please tell us what you think of this episode uh, and send us any questions that you have about what we discussed here or other topics that interest you. Uh, you can reach us by email at ricohotline at serioustrouble.show. Hey, Ken, is it Rico? It is Rico Hotline, Josh. And for the record, I still protest that email address. Rico Hotline at serioustrouble.show. Those go directly to Ken's phone. So, uh, you know, make sure to you know hit that button over and over. Uh, of course, if you're a paying subscriber to Serious Trouble, you can also join the conversation about this episode at serioustrouble.show. That's our website. There is a comments section on this episode. Uh, we have a lively and interesting listener community, and I encourage you to come there, uh, join in the comments, discuss what happened in the episode, um, pose questions there, and we may respond to those questions in a few future episode. I'm Ken White. And I'm Josh Barrow. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. This is Serious Trouble. More headed your way soon. <laughs>